Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to the Ugly Radio on the Podmoth Network, a lo-fi sci-fi audio theater anthology series made for late nights and strong drinks. Join us monthly as we broadcast a pirate signal across time and space, featuring stories, songs, and frequencies from a rotating list of voice actors, writers, storytellers, and musicians. If you're looking for high-quality science fiction, skin-crawling horror, and other genre fiction, listen to The Ugly Radio on the Pod Moth Network, now available wherever you get your podcasts. The Ugly Radio. See you in the void. Talk about what we do on our podcast. On our sugar-coated murder podcast? Like how we love to bake and talk about murder? That's what we need to talk about. There you go. I think we've talked about it. Y'all find us on all your favorite listening apps. Stay sweet. And don't murder. Because if you kill people, we will talk about you. Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we'd like to end our time with a chaser. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. We love hearing from our listeners, so feel free to contact us by email or social media. You can find our contact info in the show notes for this episode. If you'd like to support us through Patreon, you can find us there at Brutal Bazaar and Boozy Podcast, or use the link in our show notes. Hey, Mom, what story do you have for us today? I have a story about a man named Thomas Randell. And uh, he was he was an older gentleman that passed away. Um, and there was um, some interesting stuff that happened in his lifetime. So I will tell you Name all about it. Name sounds familiar. Him. Very soon. Um, I wonder if I know this story. Oh, guess you'll find out soon. What story are you going to tell us today? I'm going to be talking about Keith Jasperson or the uh, smiley face killer. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I don't think I know this story because I didn't know that the smiley face. I have heard of smiley face killers, but I didn't know they had a uh, suspect in it. I thought it was unsolved. So there's there's a guy. It might be a different story that you're thinking about. Oh, there's a guy okay. who was arrested for it. So. Oh, cool. All right. To go with Fun. this. I have a drink called the Jamaican Smile. So that's uh, one, uh, sorry. So that's a half a banana, eight ounces of ice, four ounces of pineapple juice, two ounces of rum, and a half ounce of strawberry syrup. Combine all ingredients in a blender and blend. Pour into ga- glasses and garnish with a pineapple slice. 
Let's give this. A I try. didn't garnish because I don't have pineapple. I didn't either. Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm a little scared about this drink. It's very thick. The banana is very strong in it. It's okay, much I use right now. Really, I taste the pineapple. Really? I taste the pineapple. Yeah, I don't really taste the banana. I mean, I get the creaminess from the banana, but I don't get, I hate banana and I'm not gagging on this drink. So it's, it's okay. It's not bad then. Mm-hmm. And I, the rum isn't super forward. I think the strawberry no, syrup covers it up pretty well, but yeah, it's very sweet. I wouldn't drink too many of these, but I, I'll drink no. one. No. No, it is, it is very sweet. Yeah. So tell me about this story. Talk about Keith Jasperson. Keith was born on April 6, 1955, to Les and Gladys Jasperson in Chilliwack, British Columbia, the middle child of two brothers and two sisters, so five kids total. His father was an abusive alcoholic. What a shocker. Most people Hmm. on our brutal list have abusive alcoholic fathers, so. Yeah, it's definitely a frequent theme, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Keith was a shy kid due to his size. He was often bullied and outcast and was given the nickname Igor. He started his fascination with death at only age five. (gasps) So he started young. That is. He would catch stray cats, dogs, birds, lizards, and other rodents and make them fight. Yeah. Once he got some more size on them, he later continued to take these animals but would strangle them instead. All right, this guy's a barf. He later stated that this gave him joy and seemed to make his father proud of him. So, yeah, a lot of weird. He's saying, like, oh, this is one of the only times my dad wouldn't beat me when I would kill an animal in the front yard. Yuck. Ugh, I don't like this guy. Keith didn't have many friends, but one person he ran with was a boy named Martin. Martin and Keith would cause trouble together, and when they got caught, Martin always blamed Keith. This would result in a beating from Keith's father. But one day, Keith had enough and started a fight with Martin. Keith was much larger and stronger, and he overpowered Martin and began beating him until Martin's father ripped him off of his son. Oh, Okay. Keith admitted later that his plan was to kill Martin in that fight. Ten oh. years old. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Keith went on to graduate high school. Shortly, shortly after this, he met his future wife, Rose Huck, who he had three children with. The two separated 14 years later when Rose suspected Keith of cheating. However, knowing what we know now, cheater would have been the best of the outcomes 
Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. He tried to join the RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. They're like Mm -hmm. the the Canadian cops you see riding horses. Right. Um, However, he had a bunch of previous injuries that prevented him from joining. So he's kind of out of luck there. He then picked up a job as a trucker in Washington. On January 1st, 1990, Keith was at a bar in Portland, Oregon, when he met Tuana Bennett. The two hit it off, and he invited her back to her place, or back to his place, sorry. However, once they arrived, they got into a heated argument. Keith began to strangle her until the life left her body. He quickly hid her deceased body. Couldn't find where he hid it, but... I'm assuming oh. just along the side of the road is where they found a lot of his victims. So, oh. There's a weird little twist in the story here, though. Okay. So, Laverne, uh, I'm going to mess this name up, Pav- Pavlinak had actually framed her boyfriend and unintentionally framed herself in an effort to break up with him. Uh, what? Yeah. Yeah, what? so she met okay. with police and told them that her boyfriend forced her to help kidnap, rape, and murder Bennett. Okay. Yeah. The two were arrested <laughs> and convicted. He got life, and she got 10 years. She, wow. As soon as she was in jail, she tried to tell the police that she made it all up, but they didn't buy it, and so she just sat in prison. Uh, don't confess to crimes that you didn't commit (laughs) in an effort to set somebody else up because that's that's just break up with someone that guy doesn't need a life sentence sounds like he's had enough dealing with her ass no shit wow so the fact that these two got arrested this really bothered Keith because he wanted the recognition for killing her so Oh. Uh, he wrote a confession on a truck stop bathroom with a smiley face as a signature. But oh, having yeah. been a janitor, this was likely scrubbed off without a second of thought. Because <laughs> I've seen people like tagging inside of bathrooms. I don't even read that. Right. I just scrub it off. <laughs> so, he never got any notice of this. He just admitted that he did it. So. Oh, my God. uh, Since the first confession went unnoticed, he wrote a six-page letter to the Oregonian detailing the murder and signed the paper with a smiley face, leading his nickname, the Smiley Face Killer. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I got this story confused with some others. Okay. Hmm. So while most serial killers can't wait to kill again, Keith waited over two years before striking again. On August 30th, uh, 1992, the currently unidentified body of a woman, Jasper... uh, Let me read that. On the 30th of August, 1992, the currently unidentified body of a woman Keith had raped and strangled was found near Blythe, California, United States. Now that he knew he wouldn't be caught, uh, 
so fast, he began ramping up his crimes. A month after the second body was discovered, the body of Cynthia Lynn Rose was discovered. Jasperson claimed Rose was a sex worker who entered his truck at a previous truck stop that he was staying at. Mm. Um, Two months after this, Lori and Pentland's body was discovered when... uh, when questioned about this, Keith said that she was a sex worker who raised the price of his work after the fact, which made Keith mad. He oh, then wow. strangled her and ditched the body. Jeez. Jasperson killed his next victim in June 1993 in Santanella, California. She was a previously unidentified woman named Patricia Skipple. Uh, who he claimed was named Carla or Cindy. Police originally considered this death a drug overdose. Uh, And in September 1994, another Jane Doe was found in Crestview, Florida. So he's going all over the place with his job, going to each state, and he's just kind of picking states. Yeah, that's the bad thing about Uh, truck drivers is that they're everywhere. And, yeah, you know, it's hard ones. to they, they travel all the yeah. way across the country. Right. And back then, officers weren't talking to each other and there wasn't, you know, as much collaboration between agencies and between agencies, but let alone between states, you know, and you just think, oh, yeah. there's a unfortunate dead person that we have to investigate, but you don't link it necessarily to another city another state on the other side of the country so wow so keith's final victim julianne winnington winningham sorry uh she was 41 and lived in camas washington uh she was believed to have been murdered on march 10th 1995 just a few miles east of vancouver uh, like the others, she had been strangled and her nude body had been dumped over an, embank- an embankment along State Highway 14. Wow. Unlike others, Julie's friends and relatives knew that she had been seeing Keith and provided the first valuable link, his name. Oh. This would aid in investigators apprehending one of the most notorious serial killers of the past decade. Wow. Jasperson was arrested on uh, March 30th, 1995, for the murder of Julie Winningham. He had been questioned by police a week before, but they had no grounds to arrest him after uh, he refused to talk. So police came since they had his name. They just wouldn't talk. Shortly after talking with police, Keith tried to kill himself twice with no success. I couldn't find out how he tried to do it, but he failed twice. And after failing, he finally turned himself in after these attempts. Wow. He cooperated with police and gave them a full confession for eight of his 160 claimed murders. So he said he had 160, but they were only able to link eight to him. So. What? Who knows if he's telling the truth, but if he is, that's very, very scary. Yeah, it is. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
it it was this confession that allowed Laverne, the girl who framed her mm-hmm. boyfriend, uh, oh, right. to be freed from prison yes. nearly five years after their arrest. So they spent five years in prison before they were freed because of his I, confession. I wonder if she learned anything from that episode. I hope. I really hope so. I hope that set her in her place. Wow. Imagine imagine you you're in jail and someone asks you hey why are you here and it's like oh i admitted to a crime that i didn't do (laughs) just to break up with my boyfriend (laughs) right i think i think it's really common for people in prison to say that they're innocent whether they are or they're not or they truly believe in their brain that they are innocent it's pretty common for people There's after the no fact to be like i wasn't for framing me. themselves well i know but that's <laughs> what i'm saying no one's going to believe her oh. when she says i really didn't do it cuz they're like bitch we've heard that from 3000 other people today we're not going to listen to you what made her think that she was so special that they were like, oh, no, really? You you lied about the whole thing? Oh, our bad. Well, come on. Let's let you well, out of prison now. There's been plenty of cases where people do that and they the exact same thing happens. It's like, too bad, too bad you already admitted to it on tape. We have you admitting yeah. to this crime. We're going to put you in jail. Right. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Don't, don't. Anyways. Hmm. (laughs) Keith was given three consecutive life sentences and started his sentencing in OSP, which is the Oregon State Prison. Nice. He was later extradited to California where he received a fourth life sentence. And that's where he's sitting right now. In California. Okay. Nice. I get his last sentencing on the uh, 2018, but I could be wrong about that. Wow. That is so many victims. Mm. If if we are to believe him, that's wow. One hundred and sixty. That's crazy. Yeah. My yeah. mind is blown. But it definitely brings me back gross. to a couple weeks ago when we were talking about um, Joe Metheny and and all of the yeah. Ones that he claimed that he committed and like, I just don't understand. Like a meat stand to no evidence of that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think a lot of these guys are just really mentally ill and they think that they killed more people than they have or something. Oh, maybe, maybe that was all like a, a fever dream and they were like, Oh, that really happened. And it really was, they were just fantasizing about it and, Ugh. Either way, it's gross. I mean, don't kill people. Nope. Let's just, we'll just say that. And don't, (laughs) don't confess to murder that you didn't commit. You You had nothing to do with just to get away from your boyfriend. That's pretty nuts. I mean, nope. It's one thing to make up a crime that he did, but not say that, oh, I, Help you participate <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh he my forced God. me to do this crime with him. <laughs> why? Just why? So many questions. I don't know. Criminals aren't that bright. 
I wonder where so. she is now. Like, wonder what she's doing with herself. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully, she's. Could you imagine if she was your neighbor? Therapy. That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no kidding. She definitely needs it. Yeah. All, All right. right. Well, are you ready for my? Yes. So we'll see if you recognize this name after all, because you said it sounded familiar. So Thomas Randell was born July 10th, 1947 in Denver, Colorado. His mother was Ruthabeth Randell and his father was Edward Randell. He grew up in Colorado, but not much of Tom's childhood has been reported as he seemed reluctant as an adult to talk about his childhood or extended family. So he's pretty quiet about what his childhood was like. His friends thought um, that maybe he had a bad upbringing, rough childhood, something like that. And that's why he didn't mention it, didn't want to talk about it. So they just kind of left it alone. As an adult, he moved to the East Coast. He attended New England College in New Hampshire. In the 1970s, he was teaching. Um, he was teaching golf, and he was a golf pro. Um, and then he eventually became the manager of the Pembroke Country Club. In the off season, he participated in the professional winter tour of golf in Florida. So he would spend his time between Florida and Boston, back and forth during the different seasons. He met his future wife, Kathy not long after moving to the Boston area, and they were married in 1982. The couple had a daughter named Ashley, and the family lived in Linfield, Massachusetts, a suburb outside of Boston. Beyond golf, his second big interest was cars, and he eventually became a successful luxury car salesman, with that career lasting around 40 years. His friends and family described him as polite and well-spoken with an amazing golf game that everyone wanted on their team if there was a golfing event. So, you know, sometimes work jobs have like, oh, we're going to go golfing at a tournament or something. And they always wanted Tom on their team because he was really good. Obviously, I mean, he was a former golf pro. So he spent a lot of time with his family, friends and coworkers. He had friends in all walks of life, from other car salesmen to his neighbors to even law enforcement, including a local FBI agent. He lived an apparently average life until 2021. On May 18th, 2021, he passed away due to lung cancer at the age of 73. He was surrounded by his family in his last moments. So, there, I told you about Tom. I know, not a really exciting story. Super boring. Not the end of our story, though, because this is a bizarre story and it's not over. And it's pretty bizarre. So we're going to go back in time, back to Colorado. Let me tell you about Theodore Conrad, often called Ted. Ted was born on July 10th, 1949 in Denver. When he was in the fourth grade, his parents divorced. 
He then moved his mother and sister. He moved with his mother and sister to Lakewood, Ohio. He was an intelligence. Um, he was very intelligent and had an above average IQ of 135. He was a popular kid in school, being elected to student council, as well as participating in the German club. He was described as quiet and articulate with a clean cut appearance. He graduated from Lakewood High School in 1967, then went to New England College, where his father was an assistant professor. However, he only attended one semester at that school, and after leaving that college, he went to a nearby community college. In 1969, Ted got a job working at a cash vault for Society National Bank. He worked at the bank's headquarters in Cleveland and his job involved packaging money to be sent to individual bank branches around town. So he worked in the vault, not in an actual bank per se, and he would pack up the money that would go out to the different branches around town. He was considered a trustworthy employee based on his academic background and references from important community members. So they thought, this guy, you know, he's really smart, he did well in school, he knows a lot of people in the community, so we're going to give him this job dealing with all this money. They didn't just want anybody, you know, handling all those large sums of money that's going out to the different branches, so they wanted to make sure that they had somebody that was trustworthy. During the time he worked at the bank, his performance reviews were all good. So his bosses said, yeah, he's a good kid. He's doing a good job. You know, he's, he's good at his job. Ted enjoyed the 1968 movie, The Thomas Crown Affair, watching the movie multiple times over and over again, which, I mean, we're all guilty of that. We all like certain movies. The premise of the Thomas Crown Affair movie is that a millionaire businessman named Thomas Crown orchestrates a huge bank heist. Ted's interest in the movie was evident to his friends and his regular discussions of how easy it would be to orchestrate a bank heist, especially for him because he worked in a vault. So he would watch the movie and tell everybody, I could totally get away with a big job like this. It would be so easy. There was very little security at the vault. Well, I don't think you'd get away as easily if you were an employee. I think they'd have your name and your address and you'd have to take that money and go. Yep. Yep. Well, he thought that it would be super easy. You know, he works there. He's like, piece of cake. I got this. <laughs> and he, part of the reason he thought that was that there was very little security at the vault. And this is 1969. They never fingerprinted him for the job. But even though he talked about, oh, this would be so easy to pull off this big heist, no one took him seriously. They were just like, he just likes the movie and he's talking out of his ass, basically. On Friday, July 11th, 1969, Ted went to work as usual, but he left with a little something extra. That something extra was $215,000 in cash that he placed in a paper bag and carried out with him at the end of his workday. I was going to say, why did he take such a little amount? But if you just well, have it in your lunch bag, then you could probably okay. only fit $250,000. Right. But this is 1969. 
So with inflation, that oh, is so one point eight grand. One point eight million dollars in twenty twenty three is what he walked out with in a brown paper bag. That's some retirement money right there. You retire with <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. For oh man, oh yeah. I would love that money. After taking the money, he went to the airport. He called his girlfriend from the airport, telling her that he was taking a flight to Pennsylvania to attend a music concert. And he fled the area. The theft wasn't discovered until the following Monday. And it was noticed that Ted didn't come to work that day, placing him right at the center of the suspect list. You know, good kid, trustworthy. What happened? He didn't come to work and oh shit, there is a whole bunch of money missing. So of course, they're looking at him. In the weeks following the theft, Ted sent some mail to his girlfriend from Washington, D.C. and California. So he's jetting around on this, you know, cash that he's got. He did claim responsibility for the theft and originally claimed that he intended to come back. But he wanted to wait until the statute of limitations expired because he was like, you know, after I think it was like seven years or something, he thought he could come back and just return to his life. But... What he didn't count on was that law enforcement would indict him for the massive theft, which allowed them to remove the time cap. So once he's indicted, they're always going to be looking for him, statute of limitations or not. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Oh, yep. A warrant was issued for Ted's arrest on charges of embezzlement and misappropriation of funds. A few months after the heist in early 1970, Ted made his way to Massachusetts. He went to the Social Security Administration office in Boston and requested a Social Security number. Back then, it wasn't unusual for young adults to apply for a number as an adult because they had not been issued one when they were younger. So they didn't have one and you need one to start working. So it was pretty common for an adult to walk in and say, I need my social security number. I'm going to start working now. Ted gave himself a new name and a new birth date, though. He quickly became Thomas Randell. Born July 10th, 1947, making himself two years older and essentially dropping off the face of the planet as Ted. Sick. Yep. (laughs) That's a really good story. Is there a movie on that? It's not done. It's not done. So both the FBI and U.S. Marshals continued searching for Ted and the money. They followed leads taking them to Washington, D.C., Oregon, California, Texas, even Hawaii. But there was no trace of him. The case was featured on popular TV shows, America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. One of the deputy marshals involved in the original investigation was John Elliott. This was one of his cases that he couldn't ignore and he couldn't put down. He kept looking for Ted until he retired in 1990. But the search for Ted didn't end there because John Elliott's son, Peter, was also a deputy U.S. marshal, and he continued hunting for Ted throughout the decades. In 2021, Peter came across 
Tom Randell's obituary. Peter didn't disclose how he found the death notification, though. But Tom's obituary contained the name of his parents, Ruth, Beth, and Edward. And those were the name of Ted's parents. So he told his family, you know, my mom's name is the same thing. My dad's name is the same thing. The date of his birth was just off by two years. And the college that he attended also matched. So the U.S. Marshal sees this obituary and he's like, all these things add up. It's not like his mom's name was, you know, Lisa or Mary. Her name was Ruth Beth. That's a. That's pretty. I've obvious. never heard that name before. Yeah. So Peter, the U.S. Marshal contacted Tom's wife and daughter, and they confirmed that Tom had actually confessed his true identity just before his death in May of 2021. Peter was also able to obtain a sample of Tom's handwriting and matched a sample to Ted's. Finally, the mystery of where Ted went and what happened to him had been solved over 50 years after the big heist had occurred, but the money was basically not accounted for. He just lived off of it, but he got away with it. Is there a movie about that? That sounds like I don't know. It would be a fantastic movie. If not, then it should be made. But this was, I mean, this is two years old, this story. What was the uh, last name of his original name? Uh, Conrad. Head Conrad. Doesn't look like there's a movie about it. Ted Conrad. All right. Let's start writing a screenplay for it. I don't think either one of us knows how to write a screenplay. No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) If a chaser for us, though. I do have a chaser. Uh, My chaser is a book recommendation. And the name of the book is Rock, Paper, Scissors. The author is Alice Feeney. It is a mystery and suspense book about a husband and wife. Uh, They basically, it's about their relationship. They start kind of growing apart. Now, that's, I don't read romance novels or books like that this is like i said a mystery and suspense novel so they go on a trip to hopefully rekindle their marriage and then spooky things start happening and they're like in this deserted uh old church that's been turned into like a bed and breakfast but they're the only people that are staying there and there's you know like First they get there, the door's locked, they walk around it, and then all of a sudden the door's unlocked and they go inside and there's a whole bunch of twists and turns and I'm not going to give any spoilers, but it was a book that I was reading that I thought I knew what was going to happen and then about three quarters of the way through I went, oh shit, I did not expect that little turn in the story. And uh, there's some people that end up getting killed and bad things happen to people and yeah it's it's a really good book so i highly recommend it 
How about you? What's your chaser today? So I, I wish I knew about this chaser like three weeks ago when I did the Boston bombing story. Maybe three weeks, oh. maybe four. I don't remember. But there's a movie on Netflix called Stronger about uh, Jeff Bauman, the guy who was able to identify the bombers who have got his oh, legs blown off. Oh, yeah. There's a yeah, movie I about remember. Jake Gyllenhaal plays him. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, you said it was called, called Stronger? Stronger? On Netflix. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I, Because you don't really... I didn't say like hardly anything about him other than his name and that he was the one who identified them when I told the story. Yeah. So it's kind of cool to get like right. some backstory on his life. Because cool. I'm sure losing your legs is very, very hard struggle to get over. So yeah, kind of no, tells I'm a not. story about that and like all the physical therapy and shit you got to do and like. Oh yeah, yeah. It's pretty interesting That's... though. Wow. That's cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. That would have been perfect chaser for the fucking it would Boston have bombing been. story, but I just found it the other day, so a little late on it, but whatever. That's okay. We just tie it back. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. If you haven't heard our Boston bombing story, go listen to that too, okay. and then watch the exactly. movie. Exactly. Please go back and listen or, to it, because it's really no, good. Yeah. And it's watch the movie. Do both. And then watch the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know frame of reference and all. Yeah. Exactly what happened before the movie takes place. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. Yes. Thank you. Love you, right. Mom. Love you, bud. Bye. Bye. Hey, friends. Thank you for supporting our podcast. Please share our show with your brutal and bizarre friends. Give us a boozy follow on your favorite podcast platform. If you're feeling extra generous, we'd appreciate a five-star rating or review as well. But maybe do that sober so all the letters are in the right place. You can find all our contact information in the show notes. We love hearing from you, and if you're interested in helping us stock the bar for our future boozy episodes, you can find our Patreon link in the show notes as well.